Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. We're beginning with the province of Ontario, and it's back-to-school plan six weeks from now. Kids, most of them, will be heading back to school. And the news, the Ontario government is ending its relationship with the WE Charity. Now, what does this mean for uh, for the province, and what does it mean for the thousands of schools in this province? Uh, school boards may individually decide on their relationship with we. Joining us on the program is the Minister of Education for the province of Ontario, Stephen Lecce. Mr. Minister, thank you very much for taking the time. It's good to be with you, Roy. Let me start, first of all, with Ontario cutting the ties with we charity. Does your government have concerns about or consider we to have been irresponsible with public monies? Well, look, I mean, we're very concerned about the allegations. And at a time when families are working harder and taking home less, I think governments of all stripes have a duty to ensure absolute value for the taxpayer of this country. And the allegations are serious. It's ongoing. And I think the best practice is to end our relationship with we formally. Obviously, uh, you know, we continue to prioritize relationships with various organizations, particularly that do mental health supports. But the government doubled the investment in mental health. There are many organizations with credible track records that can deliver it. And we just choose to err on the side of caution when it comes to uh, the people's money. And we're just not going to be, uh, you know, further expanding it, that relationship. In fact, we've asked school boards to review their current contracting with that organization, uh, that embattled organization, and we hope that they will seriously investigate to ensure uh, value for the taxpayer of this province. Yeah, I understand the Toronto School Board is already doing that. Yes, yes, they are. And, you know, look, in the ministry under the former Liberal government, you know, they were expending uh, with we in and around 650000 for many years. Then the election budget came for the Liberals with a Premier win, and they increased it from about 650000 to about $1.5 million. Uh, in the election year. When we came in, we reduced that. I mean, it was brought down to about $250,000. And I'm indicating to you, Roy, that it's coming to an end. The contract ends, as I recall, uh, in the coming days. It will not be renewed, and uh, we will not permit it to be renewed in the future under our government. Okay, so there was no particular cause, no particular reason, other than allegations, that caused your government to take the decision you've taken. Serious allegations that are now subject to uh, ethics investigation and a variety of other concerns uh, related to the organization. So we made this decision out of, uh, uh, out of the interest of the taxpayer to make sure that we're not involved in that at all. And ultimately, we just ensure that we choose organizations that can deliver uh, those elements of the curriculum, including mental health, uh, without, uh, without any of the uh, you know, uh, concerns that are surrounding this particular contract we just do we really there are many organizations across this country that do a great job in mental health delivery uh and so we'll, we'll walk to work with those all right minister let's talk about the reopening of schools in uh, the largest province in the country students across ontario and both elementary and uh, many high schools are returning to school next month outline for us please the elementary school return cohorting and how the overall covid19 factors into the reopening of elementary schools? We have sought the best advice of the medical minds in this country, some of the best leaders in pediatric health care, sick kids, at CHEO, of course, the COVID-19 command table and the chief medical officer of health. And overwhelmingly, what they have advised the cabinet is to do a suite of actions, uh, layers of prevention to ensure kids stay safe. So in elementary school, 
these kids can be cohorted with integrity. They stick with one teacher. They're separated in some respects from interacting with other children, including staggered recess, staggered bunch, lunch time, staggered bus time, opening, closing, all, and of course, scheduling to ensure we minimize contact. Contact tracing is going to be key to, the, key to the cohort. In addition to that, we are provisioning funding in place to ensure that these kids have the safest environment. And, and part of that was a $309 million net increase, which will be the largest increase in Canada, more than 50% higher than what BC is spending in their province. But it's not just about the dollars, it's about where it's going. Ontario uniquely is positioned to lead in the context of this risk. And this is a real challenge. We're going to have challenges, obviously, when you're putting significant numbers of kids uh, you know, back in school after having to close for six months. But the truth is we built a plan that I think uh, will ensure safety. Part of it is, is supported by 500 public health nurses with uh, prevention uh, and with infection prevention con- uh, training to go into our schools, support our school boards, support our students and our teachers with screening and testing and symptom relief. That's unique for Ontario. We also have uh, a plan to expend $75 million to hire over 1,200 additional custodians to clean our schools and $25 million to, you know, for Purell and hand sanitation and soap, literally in every school in the province. Money for busing, because we know in elementary, these kids, you know, we got to keep these contact points clean. So there's $40 million really provision to clean them. And obviously there'll be fewer kids on the bus as a consequence of COVID-19, one to a, a seat or two if there are siblings in the same home. We put inside $30 million to hire more teachers to ensure distancing. The medical advice has been clear. When you introduce masking, plus distancing, plus cleaning, plus hand hygiene, and all the other steps we're taking, uh, you know, the, the, the evidence is clear. These, this, that plan can keep these kids and staff safe. And the other element of it is that we're ensuring from grade four and up, really, based on the emerging science and evidence, that the kids uh, are masked and are provided masks. The government will provide a cloth mask to every child that needs it. And likewise for the staff, a, 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 a surgical mask for the staff, part of our obligation to reduce the risk for everyone. So, look, there's a lot we're doing. There's more I can say. But in the interest of time, we're not sparing an expense or resource, a staffing increase, a new custodian, whatever it takes. We're putting the money in place to make sure that parents can confidently return their child to work, uh, to school, and that they themselves can return to work knowing that the system will be responsive to the risk, however it emerges. And Roy, I want to be clear, whatever happens this fall, if there's a serious challenge that emerges in 30, 60, 90 days, we will continue to step up and be there with more resources to protect our children. All right, Minister, I know time is tight. What about high school, secondary students? It's a little different or significantly different. Yeah, it is. I mean, you know, and, and the reason why I think you're noting that is just because it's tougher to cohort a high school student that has more choice uh, within their uh, schedule. For example, in grade 9, you get one elective. Grade 10, you traditionally have two. In grade 10, you have two electives. And then grade 11 and 12, you have, like, they're all electives, essentially, really. So that means you're getting more interaction with other kids in different classes. So what we've done is we've changed the way school is delivered to a quadmester system. So opposed to taking one course every day for a semester or the year, we're intensifying the course up front. You still get the same amount of hours of instruction in the course, but opposed to one hour a day, you're now doing half a day of an intensive course. That reduces your interaction with teachers who themselves have in, who are in, you know, teaching other kids, and it really maintains that cohort function that we envision. In addition, we have 
uh, put in place a very proactive surveillance testing of high school students, of asymptomatic students, because the medical advice continues to demonstrate that it is in the interests of public health to have asymptomatic testing aggressively in our schools. And the reason why it's for high school, not elementary schools, because the data suggests, the emerging evidence suggests that the risk for transmission is higher in that age. And we will be unique, the only province that will have an aggressive uh, asymptomatic testing protocol in place. Of course, uh, the cleaning protocols, the testing, screening, uh, and the public health elements will help there too. Uh, and I would just argue for higher risk communities, Roy. So, for example, if you live in a community that, you know, um, has higher levels of transmission, take, for example, Toronto or York or, you know, even Hamilton. In those communities, the high school will be on an adapted model, meaning it's going to be an every other week model, essentially, where they're in class and online. The reason why is that decision was made is we want to, A, be risk averse in our restart in September. B, we know that there's a bit higher transmission risk in those older students. So lowering the amount of kids in class, reducing that quantum, increasing spacing and distancing between the kids will be prudent, plus the masking. And finally, it it enables us to build up from the adapted. Meeting Roy, if things are going well the first 30, 40 days, then in October, boards that have lower transmission risk can move to that uh, conventional delivery. But we want to make sure for those high school students, they can learn, they can be supported, uh, but they don't necessarily, uh, you know, um, have a higher level of risk when they get into our school. So we're going to make sure that the online learning is strong for those kids when they're not in school. And we're also asking boards to come up with a study model, which is essentially they may not be in class that week. Let's say that cohort is out of class that week, but they can still go to school to study, use the Internet, have access to the nutrition programs, have access to the mental health programs, be in a safe space with staff but maybe they're not being led by an in-person teacher. They're being led by a teacher live, synchronously, uh, online. And if the teacher could be 30 feet away from them, but they're not in front of them because they're, you know, the cohorts are every other week. So there's a way to do this that enables the child to have continue, continuity of service uh, when it comes to those other elements of, of education, like mental health or nutrition or breakfast programs. But yeah. it also ensures that parents can get to work. And keep in mind, for high school students, it's a bit easier for parents. They could go home without a major impact on them. But if, they, if it is a challenge, they now have this option, which boards are being encouraged to produce. And I just want to say, folks out there, for parents listening, you have the choice. The Premier made it very clear. We're giving you the choice to go put your child in class or to go online. If you are going online, it will be a much better version of what we have had in the spring, where we faced union opposition to uh, synchronous live learning, to be quite frank, we've made it very clear our expectation. Live, five days a week, in front of an educator, uh, keeping these kids motivated and focused on the curriculum. And that's what our expectation will be. Uh, And obviously, they make that choice. And we're asking boards to allow parents to come back in. So if you say, look, I don't want my child to go in September. In a couple months, you sort of think it's safe then you have that right to re-enter school boards and school boards are being are developing a process for parents to give notice and the child gets back in at either predetermined entry periods um, and so speak to your local board public catholic english french in your community but that's going to be another added value so you can stay home and then go back in the system should you want down the road we're just trying to give as much options as we yeah. can roy i mean this is a, a very difficult yeah. uh, way to you know it's a difficult decision right i mean there's, there's, there's unintended impacts but we're just trying to give choice to parents, quality of education, no matter what the delivery is, and fundamentally a safe experience 
where we have public health in our schools, unlike any province in the country, with the recognition that there's going to be challenges, but the government's going to be there working very closely with the medical community to keep everyone safe. And I mean our staff and our students and our communities. Minister, that's certainly a a large plan and, and well thought out. I'm still digesting everything you've told me. Um, but the time sure have changed from the day when we slapped a sandwich into our backpacks and took off for school. Thanks, uh, okay. Minister. Have a great day. Have a good day. Thanks so much. Stephen Lecce is the Education Minister for the province of Ontario. If nobody believes you when you say you don't know how much money your family has got from the WE Group. That information has been publicly shared, but I will highlight... Well, then tell me what mother, it is. Uh, my mother... How much? I don't have it in front of me. And quite you don't frankly, know how much your family has received from this organization, which you tried to give a half billion dollars. Really? Can I answer, Mr. Polyev? I'm waiting. You haven't done an answer so far. Let's make this the first one. So there was a little bit of an exchange between Pierre Polyev, the finance critic for the Conservative Party of Canada, on Thursday as the Finance Committee, Parliamentary Finance Committee, uh, heard testimony, sworn testimony from the Prime Minister about his what he knows and what his involvement was with uh, We Charity and that program that was uh, supposed to be uh, engaging in Canada. And um, so now the Prime Minister, of course, is going to be facing the Conflict of Interest and Ethics Commissioner, Mario Dion, for the third time in five years. Twice he's been convicted of improper behavior. And uh, his finance minister, Bill Morneau, is also being investigated by the commissioner with an enhanced investigation. And I was wondering on Twitter, just idly, whether we will now see uh, Mr. Morneau promoted to being Veterans Affairs Minister, looking at recent Canadian political history. Joining us on the program on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network is a Conservative Member of Parliament who engaged the Prime Minister, who is part of the Finance Committee, and engaged the Prime Minister in uh, questioning, and I thought did a, a really good job of asking questions, Michael Cooper joins us, Conservative Member of Parliament for Edmonton. Mr. Cooper, how are you today? Very good. How are you, Roy? Well, I'm fine. Now, what's the? How, how do you? When you when you left the left that, uh, that 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 gathering on Thursday, what were you feeling? What were you thinking? What was the the takeaway from that at that precise moment as you left the room? Well, the takeaway that I had is that the Prime Minister's version of events and that of uh, his Chief of Staff, Ms. Telford, simply doesn't add up. Uh, the Prime Minister claims that he pushed back on May 8. Well, there are a number of problems with that. Uh, first of all, the WE organization was incurring eligible expenses effective May the 5th to administer the program. What happened on May the 5th? Well, just happened to be a call between uh, Craig Kielberger and someone in the PMO, and then the WE organization continued to incur eligible expenses past May the 5th for 17 days after that through to May 22nd, uh, the date that Cabinet finally gave the green light. And for the Prime Minister to pretend that somehow this was thrust upon the government on the prime minister on his cabinet by the public service requires a suspension of disbelief Uh, after all it's parliament uh, that authorizes spending for a program it is cabinet that approves a program and it is the civil service that implements and administers 
the program. Here, there was no program, and yet money was going out the door to we. It's simply not plausible that that was at the direction of the civil service. The only plausible explanation was uh, that it came from the top, there was political direction, and the message was that we was going to get the half a billion dollar contribution. Do you so think, think that Mr. Trudeau, do you think Mr. Trudeau was telling you less than he knows, or do you believe he was intentionally not telling the truth? There is a it, distinction. It all, seemed, it all seemed too convenient. Now, we do know that there were communications between officials in the PMO and we in the lead-up. And uh, Ms. Telford stated that there were uh, five individuals involved in those communications with the WE organization, but she refused to elaborate or provide any details whatsoever as to the names, as to the dates, as to the context. Uh, we need to find out who those individuals were and what those communications were about. Was anything Mr. Trudeau testified to a surprise to you and your Conservative Party colleagues, or were you pretty well expecting what you got? I, I guess one thing, uh, and I, I don't know that I should be so surprised about this, because I, I, I say, preface it by saying that the Prime Minister is someone who has repeatedly demonstrated that he believes there's one set of rules for he and his friends and another set of rules for everyone else. But the Prime Minister acknowledged that there was a perception of a conflict of interest. I would submit there's more than a perception there was an actual conflict of interest, having regard for the benefits that had been showered upon his family, his wife, his brother, his sister, by uh, the WE organization. Uh, the Prime Minister claimed that he had received clearance through the Ethics Commissioner. Well, perhaps in the abstract, the Ethics Commissioner said that there's no issue with his wife being involved in a charity organization. Uh, but then you have a half-a-billion-dollar contribution uh, agreement that uh, the Prime Minister was suddenly involved in deliberating about and ultimately participating in the decision-making as to whether or not that program would go ahead. Uh, that is a clear material change of circumstances. And so in the face of the Prime Minister recognizing that there was a perception, uh, it's completely inexplicable that at that moment he would not have recused himself uh, and go, or at the very least gone to the Ethics Commission. But mm. again, I think it's because this is a Prime Minister who really, when it comes to ethics, has, doesn't seem to understand. He, does, he seems to be have a blinder with respect to that. Well, there is the uh, repetitive visual, um, mental visual for most of us, of the Prime Minister appearing before the Parliamentary Conflict of Interest and Ethics Commissioner uh, twice already, having been convicted twice of impropriety already, and now heading back for a third time, and that does not look well on the Prime Minister, does not look well on the Canadian government, and add to that that the Ethics Commissioner is investigating the Finance Minister, Mr. Morneau, and has expanded his investigation of Mr. Morneau based on the fact that some 42000 close to $42,000, were paid by the WE organization for Morneau's travel in 2017. Um, what do you expect to get out of this? What Politically, what do you expect is going to happen 
as far as this we story is concerned. Is it the iceberg where we just see 10% of the reality so far, Mr. Cooper, 90% remains below the surface, or do we pretty well know now what went on within the Liberal ranks? I, I think it's clear that there was political direction, but there's still many unanswered questions, and it's why the Finance Committee... Uh, needs to continue to follow the evidence. It's why hearings need to continue. We need to hear from more witnesses, including uh, the CFO of the the WE charity, uh, some of the PMO officials who were involved in communications with WE around this program, uh, amongst others. So uh, we, as the official opposition, uh, are going to work hard to continue to uh, press for uh, continuation of the investigation to get answers that Canadians deserve. What was your sense, what was your takeaway from the testimony by the Kielberger brothers and by the finance minister? Well, with respect to the Kielberger brothers, I thought they were evasive. They refused to answer basic questions. They tried to run out the clock. Uh, So uh, I I don't think that they acquitted themselves very well. And uh, with respect to Bill Morneau, I mean, it's just incredible uh, that he suddenly, uh, the day before he was appearing before the Finance Committee, would suddenly have discovered that there were $41,000 uh, in travel expenses, illegal travel expenses that had been showered upon he and his wife, and that he just happened to discover it the day before and cut the check the day he appeared before uh, the Finance Committee. Uh, it's very clear that Bill Morneau contravened the uh, Conflict of Interest Act, uh, acted completely inappropriately. And there may be uh, another uh, section of the Conflict of Interest Act that Bill Morneau uh, did violate in terms of his wife accepting uh, private aircraft. We don't know that for sure, but it appears or likely that when she arrived in Kenya with uh, Mr. Morneau's daughter, uh, that they traveled to the Wee site uh, by way of private aircraft. Uh, I asked that question to the Kielbergers. They they were not certain, but they said in most cases that's how people get there. If in fact that's the case, that is a clear-cut violation of the conflict of interest. Yeah, there are many more questions that need to be answered, including uh, when Mr. Trudeau was asked and claimed he had no knowledge of the monies we paid his mother and brother for speaking engagements and wouldn't or couldn't share what we reimbursed his wife for as far as expenses for her trip to London where she spoke on behalf of we were concerned. Uh, those, those questions are relevant. They need to be answered. And for the Prime Minister to say, go and consult media reports, not nearly enough. Not nearly enough. Mr. Cooper, thank you for the time. Good talking to you. Thanks, Roy. Michael Cooper, Conservative Member of Parliament, who question the Prime Minister of Canada. Justin Trudeau, Thursday, while testifying before the Parliamentary Finance Committee, uh, proclaimed his innocence of any malfeasance as far as uh, awarding the uh, WE charity the management of a budgeted $912 million for the Canada Student Service Grant with $543.5 million set by uh, set as the contribution agreement as a spending maximum. So no malfeasance, says the Prime Minister, and for the third time, though, he finds himself before the Ethics Commissioner, where he was convicted 
previously twice. There was the uh, Bahamas trip, conflict of interest, the SNC-Lavalin case, and interference with Jody Wilson-Raybould. During her sworn duty as Attorney General and Minister of Justice, she was eventually removed from the Liberal Party because she didn't agree with the Prime Minister and wanted to tell more of her story. As was Jane Philpott, the former health minister, two stars in the Trudeau government in 2015. And there was the cruel and ultimately vindictive attack on Vice Admiral Mark Norman that still sticks in my craw. Charlie Angus, uh, cons- I'm conservative, NDP ethics uh, critic, joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Mr. Angus uh, quizzed Mr. Trudeau, and uh, what we heard, the soundbite we heard a minute ago was... Was, was Charlie. Charlie, thank you so much for the time. And I, I thought your quiet questioning was very effective. And essentially, your first question to Mr. Trudeau was, do you know why you're here today? Well, Roy, uh, and I didn't get an answer. Um, I mean, I, I think this, I, I, I've said, I think this may be the stupidest and most unnecessary scandal I've ever seen. Um, we're in the midst of an unprecedented pandemic economic medical crisis uh and i think justin trudeau sent a message around the world that canada was going to work together we were going to do it the canadian way and we worked and pushed and argued with the government on many of the the rollouts but the focus always was people are in economic freefall right now uh because you know suddenly there was no work people couldn't go into their jobs people didn't couldn't pay their rent so how do we do this in a in a fast, efficient, and fair way? And I think things were going really well. And the one outstanding thing was the crisis facing the university students with their massive levels of debt, the fact that there was no work for them this summer. And we've been pushing the Prime Minister for action. He kept promising action. And then suddenly this we scandal emerged. And the minute they announced it, Roy, this everybody said, say what? The, the, that group that you're always on the stage with, the group that your, your, your brother's been speaking at, your mother's been speaking at, your wife's involved in, it was a question of judgment from the get-go. And so that's, that's the backdrop. But when we find the really obvious conflicts of interest, this is a simple thing I laid out to the Prime Minister. Do you understand that these are conflicts of interest? And he would not answer that. He went to the civil service. It's like you can hear, Roy, the bus backing up and going over the civil Canada's great civil service again and again as these guys try to explain how they were going to turn $900 million of emergency funds into this supposed volunteer scheme. It's, it just baffles the imagination that they could have thought this was okay. It does, and the timeline is really suspicious. Even if I listen and try my best to uh, to understand what Mr. Trudeau was saying, the timeline is is disturbing. The fact that he doesn't know how much his wife was paid as far as uh, reimbursed for expenses is concerned, or his family was paid, and the fact that he's, as you said, he doesn't quite seem to grasp the concept of conflict of interest. The we organization with which his family was so uh, involved. They did a marvelous job of promoting his brand and the Liberal Party's brand around the world, certainly around Canada. Well, Roy, I think if you look at the Justin Trudeau brand, the, the hip young voice, uh, it, it is so intertwined with the WE brand from the get-go. Uh, Craig Kielberger was a max donor to, to Justin Trudeau. Now, this is a charity. Charities have to play. I, I, my daughter worked in a charity. 
their political activities they have to monitor very carefully. But uh, Justin Trudeau becomes leader. Uh, we is having him at their big stadium rallies. He becomes prime minister. The first, basically, the first event he does is with we. Uh, so they're really building the brand. Then, and this is the thing that I think is really disturbing. You know, I, I'm I'm really impressed with the transformation of Margaret Trudeau and the work she's done with mental health. But she gets hired by we after uh, Justin Trudeau becomes prime minister, and and that's his right. brother gets hired by we. Uh, and that's to the tune of about half a million dollars. And we're initially told no money. It's all volunteer. And really impressive people volunteer for We Roy, and nobody gets paid. So we asked the chair of the board, why were the Trudeaus being paid? And she said, we specifically asked the Kielbergers, and they told us nobody was getting paid. Well, half a million was going to the Trudeau family. So that gives the impression of trying to... to sell the Trudeau name to their corporate sponsors at WE, and that puts the Prime Minister in an obvious conflict. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's as clear as can be. He had to be really careful with these guys once this uh, once they started to move down this road. Mm-hmm. When you look back to, uh, to Thursday and the testimony by the Prime Minister, and then Wednesday, the testimony by the Kielberger brothers, and then you look back to uh, Mr. Morneau's testimony, What's your what's your takeaway from all three, Charlie? Uh, my sense is is that Bill Morneau just doesn't he actually doesn't understand the conflict of interest. He's never read it. I asked him simply. I said, Mr. Morneau, have you ever read the Conflict of Interest Act? And he said, Well, there were a bunch of acts when I was elected. Well, come on, Roy. If your listeners are out there and they're doing small town uh, school board, small town municipal politics, any kind of public board, the obligations to recuse yourself those things are so obvious. So. Bill Morneau is in deep trouble. Then we find out, and the Kielbergers didn't tell us this, that they were making their employees, this is the allegation, they were making their employees go to Bill Morneau's parties to, to fill the room. Well, that's, that to me is a step way, way over the line. I don't think we could get a straight answer out of the Kielbergers. It was very combative, but Roy, we didn't, nobody from uh, asked the Kielbergers to come. We were going to keep them out of this. We were going to focus on the Prime Minister, and we were going to leave that charity out of this. They asked to come. They asked to be put under oath. Boy, I, I think there's a lot of problems with their testimony. And then Justin and his date, you know, he was the only one, the only one who was saying, we got to we got to pull, hold, hold the horses here and, you know, do due diligence. It just doesn't add up, Roy. <laughs> so, so Charlie, for fools. what now? Well, this investigation needs to continue. I think the ethics commissioner is is adding. Uh, I think it's going to be one hell of an indictment against Mr. Morneau and Mr. Trudel when it comes down. Um, what really worries me, uh, we were told this was such a great plan. They did all this due diligence. Not a dime ever went out the door to the university students. I'm talking to university students all the time who are saying, "How how am I going to how am I going to be able to pay for schooling this fall?" I got. I, I had nothing in the summer to get through. So Trudeau's completely failed the, the, the university students. He could have made it up by saying, okay, we blew it. We're going to get money out the door. We can do this. There were a lot of options for that, Roy. We walked through a bunch of options of get money out the door. It hasn't happened. But uh, I, I think Mr. Morneau is seriously, seriously damaged now because uh, he's been allowed. He's taken this money for trips. Uh, he's, uh, you know, his family were hired. Uh, he, the fact that they were doing pub- political events for him, I, I don't see Bill Morneau long for this world. 
And Justin, you know, he's he just doesn't seem to get that the law of the land applies to him. No, <laughs> what else no. can you say about this guy? No, and I would imagine that within the Liberal Party of, of Canada, the uh, the movers and shakers are not terribly impressed. And I think Mr. Trudeau has become a liability to that party. And, and, and you know, I don't want... Oh, yeah, I'll ask you what you think. Well, I know a number of Liberal MPs who are really angry that this happened. Um, they're no dummies. They know the second the weed thing was announced, people were going to say, say what? What are, you do? what are you talking about? These are the guys who hang out, you know, do all the events for Justin. Right. Uh, so... And again, Roy, I, I'm really angry about this because, like, the rest of the world is, seems to be in free fall and chaos. And for a while, Canada was looking like, you know, we're we're doing this the Canadian way. We we stick together in rough times. We have each other's back. You know, we all. I mean, I was rallying around, telling everyone, you know, talk, listen to the prime minister, listen to the premier. We're all yeah. working on this together. And now we got this. And yeah. how can you say? that this was about us working together. This is a failed vanity project. Justin loves this idea of volunteerism, you know. And again, if you're wealthy and you don't have $50,000 worth of student debt, that might be a great idea. Right. We didn't need that in the middle of the biggest no, medical no, we sure. catastrophe we sure didn't. in a century. We didn't need it now. Charlie, I thank you for the time. Thanks for coming on. And I thought the way you positioned your first question was absolutely brilliant. Charlie Angus, ethics uh, critic, member of parliament for the New Democrats. Documents about dealings between Jeffrey Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell were unsealed by a U.S. judge on Thursday. And if you've read the allegations, they are disturbing. Many more to come, by the way, in coming days. Bill Clinton is alleged to have been in the company of two young girls on Epstein's private island, among others, including Prince Andrew. Now, these are allegations. They are not charges and nothing has been proved, but proven, but they are there nevertheless. Gloria Allred, famed U.S. human civil rights and women rights lawyer, inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame in the United States and author of Fight Back and Win joins us. And uh, Ms. Allred represents 16 women who are charging that they were sexually abused when they were girls by uh, Epstein and uh, Maxwell and their scheme. Ms. Allred, thank you very much for the time, and what do you take away from the document release on Thursday? Yes, and thanks very much for inviting me again, Roy. It's always a pleasure to be on your show. And at this point, by the way, I'm now representing 20 accusers of Jeffrey Epstein, 20 victims, and some have allegations against uh, Ms. Maxwell as well. Uh, I think this is important, this uh, document release. It's from the defamation case that was filed by Ms. Roberts, uh, who alleges that she was one of the victims of Jeffrey Epstein, and she alleges of Ms. Maxwell as well. And she filed a defamation case, uh, in other words, libel slander, against Ms. Maxwell some years ago. In, in, in connection with that, Ms. Maxwell had to give her deposition that it's her testimony under oath in a civil case. Now, ultimately, that civil case, was settled. We don't know what the settlement was, but it was settled. And the documents, and I believe also the deposition, were under seal. Uh, then now, of course, uh, the documents are of interest because uh, the Ms. Maxwell did not want them unsealed uh, to be available in this uh, criminal case against her, uh, where she is accused of, you know, recruiting... Uh, underage girls to be sex trafficked to Jeffrey Epstein. 
but the court decided to unseal the documents. And so what we have is now Ms. Maxwell's testimony under oath. She's also, by the way, uh, criminally charged with perjury for testimony she gave in that deposition under oath. And uh, so in addition to the other charges, and now we're feeling we're we're finding out quite a bit, and you know there are many other documents that will be unsealed. So we're going to find out even more, uh, and that's what's happening right now. I, Ms. Max, uh, Ms. Roberts alleged in that case uh, that Ms. Uh, Maxwell uh, had, in fact, uh, not only uh, sex trafficked underage girls to Mr. Epstein, but that she herself had abused. Uh, some of the girls. So this is significant. And, of course, the names of many powerful men that Ms. Maxwell knew and that were discussed in that civil lawsuit are now coming out as well. For example, uh, she is alleging that um, that is uh, Ms. Maxwell, under oath, uh, uh, gave her testimony. Ms. Roberts alleges that former President Clinton came to Mr. Epstein's island, that's Little St. James Island, that he uh, apparently was walking around with two young girls on his arm. Uh, My understanding is President Clinton, through his spokesperson, uh, denies having been to that island. Uh, He uh, he was uh, at the uh, Manhattan residence of Jeffrey Epstein, but... um, you know, we'll see what the flight logs show right. uh, as to whether he was ever at that island. Of course, Jeffrey Epstein had his private plane, which was some people have called the Lolita Express. Even if he was at that St. James Island, uh, we don't know if it's true or not that, you know, he was walking around with young girls. We don't know. And if he did, does that mean that he did anything that was sexually inappropriate with him? We don't know yet. As uh, as we often say, more to come. Uh, we, you and I have spoken, and you've spoken specifically about Prince Andrew, and here he is back in the middle of this development. And you've called on the prince to make his way to the United States to be questioned by law enforcement and prosecutors. And what the question I meant to ask you the last time we spoke was: Is he at all obliged to follow that call by American um, justice officials to to appear in the United States? Well, that's a great question. Actually, I didn't even say that he had to come to the United States. He can just stay right where he is in the U.K., uh, because the FBI certainly has, uh, uh, you know, investigators there who could facilitate an interview with them. Uh, now, my guess, I don't have particular knowledge of this, is the prosecutors would likely be willing to fly to the U.K. if he would just sit for an interview. Mm-hmm. He hasn't done so yet. There's all this back and forth where he's trying to portray himself as a victim and saying that he would be willing to, you know, uh, speak with them. This is through his attorneys, of course, and the FBI saying that essentially that wouldn't happen, that hasn't happened. Um, It may be, and this is, again, just a guess on my part, that he may be willing to answer questions, written questions, but, of course, then if he does that, he has the advantage of having his attorneys sit there and go over how those questions should be answered. But, and also, again, my guess is that prosecutors in the FBI would want him to appear in person for an interview and answer questions. All right. uh, 
So that's, it, that would be a big difference if he did that. So far, no interview. And this is, it's not going away. It's only getting bigger, Roy, yes. because, you know, as more and more documents come out and Prince Andrew's name, if it is mentioned more and more, it's going to be, continue to be of interest. Right. Ms. Allred, thank you so much for the time. This, uh, we're scratching the surface on this very Always disturbing case. Thank you. Yeah, thanks so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Gloria Allred joining us from Los Angeles. So things have changed. Things are changing. And on Thursday, the Supreme Court of Canada refused to permit Democracy Watch to appeal a federal court of appeals decision setting aside a challenge by Democracy Watch that the Trudeau cabinet's appointment of their own ethics commissioner and commissioner of lobbying was inappropriate. The, uh, the federal court, the appeals court, ruled that although the appointments were biased, I love this, although the appointments were biased, the government was permitted to be biased. So there are times I, I wonder if I even can begin to understand what is being said, and that is one of those times. The Federal Court of Appeal ruled that although the appointments were biased, the government was permitted to be biased. Also, Democracy Watch has filed a new and different ethics complaint against Bill Morneau, the finance minister, regarding his relations interactions with We Charity. Uh, Democracy Watch's complaints are different to those filed by the Conservative Party and the New Democrats last week. Duff Conacher is co-founder of Democracy Watch. He joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Duff, you're a worldly guy. You're a lawyer. You get it. When the Federal Court of Appeal rules on your case that although the appointments were biased, the government is permitted to be biased, and the Supreme Court goes along for a ride, explain, please. Well, it's something that the uh, Supreme Court established as a rule back in 2001 uh, with any kind of commission, board, agency, tribunal. These are known as administrative tribunals that the government has set up for lots of different specialized areas of law enforcement. And the Supreme Court ruled back in 2001 that unless the uh, tribunal is essentially protecting charter rights, they don't have to be independent from cabinet in the same way that the courts have some independence and that, you know, judges are appointed for life and they can't be fired except for cause. They have this independence. And then to varying degrees across the country, the appointment process is also independent for uh, judges. Uh, And unfortunately, they didn't take this case. And now it's legal across the country for uh, cabinet ministers to choose their own watchdogs on the areas of ethics and lobbying and access to information and spending, all these key areas that uh, where the laws are really ensuring we have a, a democracy and that the public's money is protected. And it's a very unfortunate uh, precedent. Thankfully, five provinces actually do have a fairly independent process for choosing their, their uh, ethics watchdogs. Uh, but the other five don't, and the federal government doesn't as well. And, and that's what we, why we were trying to get the courts to step in and say, no, you can't do this. You can't choose your own judge, not when they're enforcing a law that applies directly to your own actions. No. What can, what can no, I say? No, I mean, it, make, it makes no sense. It's like being charged with a crime and, and then saying, well, I'll choose the judge who's going to yeah. rule on my case. Everyone would want to choose their own judge, of course you choose the person you think would be most likely to let you off. And, and that's why it's so dangerous to allow this. But 
as they say, the Supreme Court of Canada is fine with it. And uh, all we can do is go back to Parliament. I'm hoping that the opposition parties in this minority Parliament will say we're finally going to stop this and put forward a bill, and they can pass it if they want, because they have majority of seats in the Parliament. The Liberals wouldn't be able to stop them. And we'd finally at least match the five provinces that have some independence in the selection process for these key democracy and good government uh, watchdogs that protect the public's money and the public interest. Yeah. I want to remind our listeners, just go to democracywatch.ca, democracywatch.ca, and you can read more and find out more about this particular situation on, on the website. You can also contribute to Democracy Watch. They do a lot of great work about taking care of monitoring the democracy really is is properly uh, applied in this country of ours so it's democracywatch.ca so just to, to, to back it up for some people who may not be 100 percent sure what we're talking about here is that the cabinet of mr trudeau decided on who the commissioner the ethics commissioner was going to be also who the lobbying commissioner was going to be without taking this particular process to the opposition parties for their participatory activities or their support, even though parliamentary law, if I understand it correctly, parliamentary law demands that they do this. Yeah, they are required to consult. Uh, but their idea of consultation was cabinet controlled the whole process. Everyone on the selection committee uh, for choosing the, the candidates for lobbying commissioner and ethics commissioner were controlled by cabinet, people who served at the pleasure of cabinet and uh, cabinet staff, people like that. And they then put forward at the end of that secretive process that cabinet controlled, they put forward just one name. They said, here's the person we're choosing, opposition parties, and uh, you have a week to tell us whether you're okay with that, but we're going ahead with it anyway, no matter what you say. And the Federal Court of Appeals said, yeah, that's, that's consultation. That, that's what consultation <laughs> means under the, the uh, Parliament of Canada Act. And again, a stunningly bad precedent because that's not consultation to tell people, here's the one name that we're proposing and you have seven days and uh, tell us what you think. Give us your thoughts, but that's it. Consultation would have been uh, if they had shown the resumes of the, the five or six qualified candidates that they had for the ethics commissioner. And we think also they had uh, qualified candidates for the lobbying commissioner, but they're refusing to disclose the results of the, uh, the selection process for that. We challenged them under the access to information law and trying to get them to do it, but they're refusing to. We know for the ethics commissioner process, they had six qualified candidates and a consultation would have been to show all all six to the opposition parties and say, you know, give us your top three, and then we'll all decide together, because this ethics watchdog watches over all of us, doesn't just watch over the cabinet. So it should be a strictly nonpartisan person, uh, someone that all the parties feel is going to do a good job and is nonpartisan. And instead, they put forward one name and said, take it or leave it. And the, the Federal Court of Appeals said, that's fine, that was consultation. And so it's it's... An unbelievable decision as well, and unfortunately, the Supreme Court of Canada, again, refused to hear our appeal of that. You know, this is really, really at the most fundamental level of my of my understanding, very, very disturbing, because, as you say, the Ethics Commission's responsibility, Commissioner's responsibility, is to keep uh, an eye on all of them, each and every one of them, and uh, if they step out of line, 
to um, to bring down a specific judgment verdict, if you will, as Mr. Dion did against Mr. Trudeau uh, over SNC Ladline. He's the Dion being the one that uh, Mr. Trudeau and his cabinet selected without really engaging in participation with the opposition parties. So that didn't yeah, work he, out he, particularly well for Mr. Made, Trudeau. Yeah, he has actually made a couple of good rulings, but people should remember in SNC Lavalin, he let nine people off the hook. That's right. People who worked people who worked for Trudeau and worked for other cabinet ministers and, and Bill Morneau, all of whom did the same thing that Trudeau did. They all tried to pressure the Attorney General to stop the prosecution of SNC Lavalin. And Demarswatch is challenging that decision in court because we don't think it was right to let these PMO staff and cabinet staff off the hook. It makes it it's a dangerous precedent. What it means is the Prime Minister just can have his uh have to what um, he's not allowed to do. Yeah. And so he just so gee he just he just uh, appoints a proxy. Exactly, and has the staff do what he's not allowed to do. And then uh, the ethics commissioner has said the law doesn't apply to those staff. So that's a very dangerous precedent. And that essentially, I think in the We Charity scandal, we may be seeing Trudeau doing exactly that. Uh, Having, and, and Morneau as well, having their staff participate in the process and then say, oh, no, there's no conflict there. It was our staff doing it, not us. But, of course, yeah. staff who worked for a cabinet minister and the prime minister act at the direction and with the authority of the prime minister and the cabinet minister. They don't act on their own. So, again, very dangerous precedents all around, and that's why we're still in court challenging that ruling. Uh, and holding uh, the Commissioner Dion's feet to the fire Every time we file a complaint, we ask him to step aside and not rule on it because we still think he's biased because he was handpicked by the, the cabinet through this secretive, dishonest process that the cabinet controlled. How does the issue surrounding the sole source contract granted we, charity, now withdrawn, compare to Mr. Trudeau's previous trips to the Conflict of Interest and Ethics Commissioner's Office, one for the Bahamas trip to the Aga Khan's private Bahamas Island, the other concerning the PMO bullying of Attorney General, or then Attorney General, Jody Wilson-Raybould in the SNC-Lavalang criminal trial case. How does this current situation compare with the other two? Well, uh, it's quite comparable to the Aga Khan situation in terms of the Prime Minister... Uh, having this relationship with, uh, in the case of the Aga Khan, the, the individual, in the case of We Charity, it's uh, the organization itself, and also his spouse, Sophie Gregoire Trudeau's relationship, she's a, an ambassador, a champion, and does a podcast for the charity, so she's formally associated with it. And with Minister Morneau, also, uh, he has a daughter that works there, another daughter that has done volunteer work for the charity in the past. He and his spouse have donated $100,000 to the charity. There's a big issue about whether uh, he and his family accepted more than $40,000 in travel expenses covered by the charity as as a gift back in 2017 for two trips that they took. So with both of them, it's it's similar to the Aga Khan because in the Aga Khan, it was this issue of somebody that... uh, they knew and and had connections with who had also done a favor for them in terms of uh, uh, having these relationships and and possible gifts and payments to Trudeau's mother and brother. So it raises these issues of do they have a conflict of interest 
I think it's clear that they do. They, they've admitted they did wrong by sitting at the final cabinet table, said they should have stepped aside. The much bigger question is, it's already confirmed that their staff, Prime Minister's staff and Minister Morneau's staff, participated in the whole process of the contracting out uh, to We Charity of this sole source funding of more than $30 million. That's already been confirmed. The question is, did they actually try and influence the process, push it in the direction of We Charity or rig it in some way and so that We Charity would be the only organization actually considered? And that needs to be fully investigated, and we don't have uh, enough evidence yet to say either way. We only know their staff participated. We don't know what their staff said to anybody in the public service. And the Ethics Commissioner and Auditor General and Procurement Ombudsman and the RCMP all need to investigate and see the full communication record, as does the public, so that we'll be closer to the truth of what actually happened in, how, in terms of how this decision was made. Yeah. When it came to the Yonker Khan in that trip, Mr. Trudeau said he didn't see any conflict of any kind. And the Agar Khan was not a lobbyist uh, for the federal government or to the federal government, wasn't licensed to do that. But his foundation was, and remains so, and they had received that same year $47 million. So if there's not a conflict of interest, Mr. Trudeau can see that he needs to have his eyes checked. He said that as well in, in his statement to the committee uh, on Thursday, that I was not in a conflict of interest. There might have been a, an appearance of a conflict of interest, but there was not a conflict of interest. And um, he actually pointed to one section of the act and said, the act only applies to your family, so don't, your spouse and your dependents, so don't raise these questions about my mother and my brother getting payments from the charity. But he's wrong on both counts, first of all. Uh, it's an actual, real conflict of interest if you are taking part in the decision-making process to hand out sole source funding with no competition from other organizations, no other organizations allowed to put forward a proposal, source source funding to the charity that your spouse works for. That's a real conflict of interest. Secondly, the Conflict of Interest Act does apply to not just your immediate family, your spouse and your kids, but to all your relatives as well. And you're not allowed to take part in decisions when you have an opportunity to further your friends, your relatives, or any organization you have this kind of direct connection with, with their interests. So he really doesn't understand the law. I'm not sure whether he's read it. Someone should have briefed him on it, what the rules actually are, and he's just making false claims. Not not just his opinion. It's false claims straight up. Thank you so much for your time, as always, democracywatch.ca. I know you can use any financial support because you work hard. You spend a lot of money for the people of Canada protecting our democracy. Always great talking to you. Thank you so much for today. Thank you. Stay safe. All the best. Duff Conacher, democracywatch.ca. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.